Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. We've got a lot coming on today's program. We're going to talk to markets here with Donna Hughes, Senior Risk Manager uh, Management at Stonex here in just a moment. And then in segment two, we're going to talk with Mary Thomas Hart, Chief Counsel at the NCBA, had a landmark Supreme Court decision handed down yesterday, Sackett versus the EPA. What's it mean on the ground? Mary Thomas will fill us in. And then in segment three, we're going to talk with Steve Johnson from the Center for Practical Federalism about some risks that might be impacting state budgets as this debt ceiling negotiation gets ironed out. And finally, we're going to close today with Naomi Bloom of Total Farm Marketing, looking ahead to what she's watching over the summer. Before we jump into all of that, let's take a look at the commodity markets. Donna Hughes of Stonex joins us now. Donna, we've got some bullish moves happening in the grain. Traders don't want to go home short before a three-day weekend. I think that's right. For now, um, you know, we're looking at uh, concerns of dryness in, in the Midwest, and that's giving a boost to corn futures and a recovery in the uh, edible oils market is helping to support gains in soybeans. And with the wheat market, um, you know, we're, we're going along for the ride with corn and beans, but, um, you know, we've had, uh, we've had some issues with, uh, with some of the wheat as far as uh, thoughts of abandonment and uh, also, um, you know, yields that might not be what we thought they were um, just a couple of weeks ago. Well, that's the thing, Donna. You're kind of our boots on the ground observer there in the Southern Plains based out of Abilene. We've seen some forecast or some rain totals come down recently. Is it doing any good for what's left of that wheat crop there across Texas? You know, um, basically what it's doing is uh, uh, preventing some of the producers who are needing to get into the fields to harvest. Uh, they're, they're having to wait until those fields dry out just a bit. We have had uh, quite a bit of rain down here, and um, it seems like the uh, the moisture systems just keep coming, uh, you know, uh, one after another every uh, day or so. So that um, that backs things up a little bit. And then, of course, you know, that starts to uh, get into uh, quality issues and, and yields and all. So, um, you know, those that have uh, been able to harvest, they're finding it just a little bit different scenario than what they initially thought. Donna, what are you hearing on basis there in that hard red crop? Has has it been climbing given the fact that we've had such a drop in production? You know, uh, basis actually um, is uh, has uh, taken off, uh, you know, uh, to the downside, uh, unfortunately, for producers than what we were uh, just a bit ago. Um, you know, we've seen uh, some of the basis come off like maybe 30 to 40 cents. In some areas, um, I think, you know, some of that has to do with uh, word of the EU wheat coming in to the U.S. Uh, because of pricing. And, uh, you know, then, of course, we're in harvest. And uh, and so that's always a time of year where, you know, we see bases come down as well. But, um, you know, for now, uh, you know, we've got a few things that are uh, that are pressuring basis. And so. Um, producers are uh, just a little bit, um, you know, concerned about, uh, you know, not being able to get that price they thought they were going to get, you know, maybe even a week ago. 
it has been moving. It's been slipping awfully fast. Donna, while we're talking here, I, you mentioned we've seen this rally here today in corn, those dryness fears across much of the corn belt driving uh, both new and old crop up a little bit. New crop December corn, we're up pushing 530. Is this a point to put any uh, risk management in place? You know, we've, we've been thinking about that area for a while. I mean, uh, you know, Dece corn has been floating around that $5 level um, in, in that very narrow range for quite some time. And, uh, you know, you can always, uh, you can always uh, do something at higher levels, but certainly after being at the $5 level and uh, thoughts of uh, being lower than that as we get through the year on favorable weather, uh, 5.30 seems to be a, a good spot to do something. All right, doing something on the new crop corn, Donna, new crop beans. Is there any point in here and getting some uh, some protection in place? You know, with the beans, um, again, uh, we've seen a lot of pressure in the beans from uh, those levels that we've come off of, uh, you know, not too long ago. And uh, we've got, um, you know, some uh, fundamentals in the beans that gives us pause to uh, perhaps, uh, you know, get something done here. But um, we know that uh, the crop, you know, really isn't made, quote unquote, until uh, August. So we have quite a bit of uh, weather. To, uh, to get through a couple months of weather forecasts up until then. So um, producer might might want to, um, you know, uh, get a little bit different plan in the way of beans, but certainly at these levels, uh, if you're satisfied with the price, do something. Do something. It's time to take advantage and be aggressive here in these markets. This volatility, Donna, it sounds like it's going to be here at least for the summer. Is that your take? Yeah, um, you know, I think uh, I think going down the road, we're going to see a lot of volatility in these markets. Um, livestock, grains, cotton. I think I think uh, you know that's that's going to be an ingredient across the board for a bit. Well, Donna, I wanted to ask you here, you mentioned the rain that's been falling in the Southern Plains, those systems that just keep coming through. One of the ongoing challenges in the cattle market has been this dryness across the South. What are you hearing from your ranch producers? Is Are we getting to a point that the herd down there might be starting to rebuild? You know, I think with, um, you know, the folks that we talked to, um, you know, there's there's been uh, a lot of uh, a lot of cattle going to the feed yards, a lot of, um, you know, uh, liquidation through those seasonals that we see down here through March. And, um, you know, as far as uh, as far as buying, uh, you know, new calves and, and trying to make a go of it going out to the future, um, you know, they're priced pretty high right now. So uh, might give producers a little bit of anxiety thinking what is it they're going to get down the road, um, you know, as they're finished out. We've seen a lot of, uh, a lot of um, uh, cows going into slaughter. We've seen, uh, you know, uh, uh, cull cows going into slaughter. I mean, um, probably, probably not too many that are thinking of rebuilding at this time down in this area. And of course, um, you know, looking at those prices and, and trying to figure out what it is uh, that's going to happen down the road. Donna, that's a great point. I've got another question with this rain. I know you work with some cotton producers there across Texas. Has this rain pushed back that cotton planting for the summer? You know, I think with cotton planting, um, you know, those uh, those who who just do it every year, year over year, I mean, they're they're going to do it and um, and and get it done. But, um, you know, certainly uh, the economics of it all. I mean, 
um, you know, having to figure in insurance uh, possibilities and all of that. I mean, that that's coming into play. We've been so range bound for such a long time between that 80 and 88 cent level on the July. We haven't really seen the December uh, push up all that much as of late. And uh, it's, it's all going to come down to economics. And, uh, you know, if anything, if the planting's done, um, you know, with cotton, um, there's always the insurance issue and, and all. So um, they try to make it work either way. That's true. With so much to watch as these markets keep moving. Folks, we've been talking with Donna Hughes, Senior Risk Manager at StoneX in Abilene, Texas. Donna, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And folks, stay with us. We're going to dig into that Sackett versus the EPA decision that was handed down yesterday by the Supreme Court. Leave it here for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Welcome to the 2023 Corn Sprint. Please be silent as the runners take their marks. And looks like one plant has already pulled into an early lead because it's been enhanced with Biopath, a biological fertilizer complement from the Mosaic Company. Wait, wait, and the early favorite has crossed the finish line. Get the most out of your fertilizer investment. Don't forget to add Biopath to your early season application. Talk to your retailer about Mosaic Biologicals today or visit cornsprint.com. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heartvalve Voice U.S. 
For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA MoveCon here today, and we're going to turn our focus to Washington, D.C., specifically the Supreme Court of the United States. A week ago, they handed down a Prop 12 decision that went against a lot of what the ag industry was hoping to see in that case. On Thursday of this week, however, the Supreme Court handed down a decision in the case Sackett versus the EPA. This has been a closely watched case by the ag industry. The question is, waters of the U.S., what are they? Where are they? Finally, we got an answer. Joining us now to break down the decision is Mary Thomas Hart. She's the chief counsel for the NCBA, and she's been following this case very closely from the get-go. Mary Thomas, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Before we talk about this decision, Mary Thomas, let's think back to the beginning. What was the question put to the court here in this Sackett versus EPA case? Sure. Um, great question and, and a great place to start. So we were really looking at, you know, what is what is the limit on what the federal government or the EPA can consider waters of the United States? And that definition, you know, as small as that phrase is, that term is the definition or, you know, sets out which features are subject to federal Clean Water Act permitting. This is the fourth time that the Supreme Court has considered the, the limits of WOTUS, um, the, the outer bound. And so we were we were really excited to, to get this case heard by the Supreme Court, but I think even more excited with yesterday's decision. Well, let's jump into that. That is the meat and potatoes here, Mary Thomas. We had a decision come down yesterday, 5-4, how'd they rule? So 5-4 and part of it, but I'd like to start out with a 9-0, um, maybe larger piece of this case. So unanimously, the court sided with the Sackets against EPA. And additionally, the court unanimously voted to get rid of the significant nexus test, which is really what has plagued us um, since 2006, since the Rapanos case. It is the root of the, the whiplashing definitions that we got from the Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations. And it is such a, a vague standard that every justice on the bench um, agreed that the significant nexus standard is a violation of a landowner's constitutional due process rights. Because, Mary Thomas, just so I understand correctly, under the significant nexus test, you as a landowner couldn't go out, take a look at your ground and say that clearly is a water of the U.S. You had to bring in an expert, correct, to make an assessment. That's exactly right. You have to spend so much time and money to determine if a feature on your property is jurisdictional um, that a person could easily discharge into jurisdictional waters without ever realizing it and then be subject to criminal liability under the Clean Water Act. All right. So this decision was made. Now, of course, we've got to deal with it. We've got to uh, to reorient our waters of the U.S. thinking. Mary Thomas, what's next? We, we do. We do have to some, some work to do on that side, but I think it's a pretty easy lift compared to um, the last 10 or so years in this space. Um, so you mentioned a 5-4 decision, and I think, you know, we can kind of move into that now. So 
after determining that the significant nexus test was illegal, the court then split on what to do next. So five of the justices agreed on a new test, and that's going to be the standard now because it was a clear majority of the court. So the only features that are subject to Clean Water Act permitting requirements are traditional navigable waters and relatively permanent features that connect to traditional navigable waters, and then wetlands with a continuous surface connection to those relatively permanent features. That is an extremely narrow category of waters compared to what we were dealing with under the significant nexus test. So obviously the EPA and, and Army Corps of Engineers are, have some work ahead of them to define continuous surface connection. But Justice Alito, in his opinion, provides a lot of clarification for what he expects to see um, as a definition for continuous and, and really is clear that, you know, he's not talking about continuous some of the time. You know, I think that we don't have to worry about isolated features being jurisdictional anymore. We shouldn't have to worry about ephemeral features being jurisdictional anymore. And for cattle producers and other landowners across the country, that's a huge win. It is indeed the ability to have a, a lot more certainty when you're overlooking your land to decide whether or not these things comply is huge. But of course, Mary Thomas, we have a Waters of the U.S. rule. It was promulgated back in December by this administration. How does this ruling change that rule? We, we do have a rule on the books. Um, I think it's important to note that really the cornerstone of the Biden administration's WOTUS definition is that significant nexus test. So the very foundation of their rule um, was found illegal yesterday by the Supreme Court. Um, so while in theory that rule is still on the books, I doubt we'll see um, you know, employees or engineers for the Army Corps or for EPA using that as a standard when doing jurisdictional determinations right now. Um, but to make sure we get it off the books, I think, you know, NCBA will be working with our litigation partners and other states that are involved in litigation to get this Biden rule vacated as quickly as possible. Once this new Biden rule is vacated, Mary Thomas, do we now need a new Waters of the U.S. rule to carry the Supreme Court definition into uh, Congress? You're exactly right. And I think I think we've been doing this long enough that we all have a pretty good idea of what comes next. So, you know, it will be another rulemaking, right, to, to define WOTUS under this new standard. Um, but I think hopefully, and, and I'm putting a lot of faith in the Biden administration right now to implement the standard from the Supreme Court yesterday. Um, I think that we can, we can get through one rulemaking and hopefully finally put this issue to bed. All right. We'll see that coming out. Now, Mary Thomas, a lot of the conversation has been this is a big rollback of protections of wetlands here across the country. From, from your perspective, working with cattle producers across the country, do you feel as though that's the case? That's that's not how I see it at all, Mike. And, and I think that's an excellent point to bring up. You know, when we talk about the definition of WOTUS, we really are talking about a line drawing exercise, right? Where does federal jurisdiction end? And where does state jurisdiction begin, right? So I think we're going to see a lot of states pick up slack where EPA jurisdiction may cut off. Um, and obviously that depends on what's going on in your individual state. In doing so, I think landowners, including cattle producers, 
it'll be a lot easier for them to work with a State Department of Ag or State Department of Environmental Protection or even a local soil and water board um, to determine how to best manage features on their property rather than having to go all the way to the Environmental Protection Agency. So, you know, there may be some, you know, switch or change up in how features are managed, but I think it's going to be a net positive. A net positive. Well, that's always a win. Mary Thomas, you mentioned here as we started this conversation, we have been talking about WOTUS in agriculture and in agriculture media since the 2008 Rapanos decision. This is 18 years, 15 years, whatever it is. We've been talking about WOTUS. After this decision, following the next rulemaking, are we done? Are we done talking about WOTUS, at least for the foreseeable future? I never want to make a guarantee, right? Um, and we may, we may get to a point in the future where we're done talking about WOTUS which is really exciting. Um, but, you know, there are always issues on the horizon, especially in the Clean Water Act space. So, you know, I think it's always important to remember that a couple of years ago, um, the Supreme Court issued an opinion related to groundwater regulation under the Clean Water Act. Um, the EPA really has yet to act on. Um, and so we may we may put WOTUS to bed and it may be time to move on to another Clean Water Act issue. Um, but there's always something going on. And, and I think, you know, we can call yesterday a win and, and certainly see a glide path um, to finally ending the confusion around WOTUS. All right, Mary Thomas. Well, we'll be watching for additional rulemaking. As you mentioned, we've got to get the old WOTUS now out of compliance off the books, get the new WOTUS written up. Once all that's done, what's the next item on your agenda at NCBA that you're watching here in the courts? Wow. Um, well, you we mentioned groundwater, but I think there are a couple big cases coming up at the Supreme Court next fall. Um, one of the biggest cases is going to be related related to the Chevron doctrine, which is kind of a weedy issue, but it really is the, the case and the standard um, that gives administrative agencies a lot of power that they didn't have before the 1980s. Um, and I think that this court is looking to, to scale back on that administrative regulatory power, um, which could be, I think, really valuable for our members across the country. So that's going to be a big one to watch. Yeah, it certainly is. Mary Thomas, if we've got listeners who want to read more about the Sackett versus EPA decision or perhaps its its impact on cattle producers, where would you suggest they go? Great question. To, to follow along with this and other important issues, you can always follow Beef USA on our social media, but go to policy.ncba.org. Fantastic, folks. We've been talking with Mary Thomas Hart, the chief counsel at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, celebrating a win in the Sackett versus the EPA case. Mary Thomas, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks, Mike. And stay with us, ladies and gentlemen. When we return, we're going to talk debt ceiling implications for states with Steve Johnson from the Center for Practical Federalism. Leave it here for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel, fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Do you know how much one stock of wheat is worth? Well, you're about to find out. 
Wheat is a member of the grass family that produces a dry, one-seeded fruit commonly called a kernel. There are about 1 million kernels of wheat in a bushel, about 50 kernels per stock, which if we do the math is about 20,000 stocks of wheat per bushel. That means that if a bushel is worth $8, then each stock is worth about 0.04 cents. So, you would need 2,500 wheat stocks to equal $1. Now that one bushel of wheat will yield approximately 42 pounds of white flour or 60 pounds of whole wheat flour. A bushel of wheat makes about 42 pounds of pasta or 210 servings of spaghetti. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. And in the United States, one acre of harvested land yields an average of around 45 to 50 bushels of wheat. So if you ever wondered how much one stock of wheat was worth, now you know. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risvet with this market update. Soybeans are trading higher along with both soybean meal and oil. Crude oil is higher while the dollar is lower currently. July beans are on track for a higher close on the week and so is the November contract, but not by as much. Now, the recent sharp decline in soybean meal due to lower than expected U.S. demand has kept soybeans from trading significantly higher. Mississippi River grain shipments have risen as barge rates have declined and the shipments increased to 506,000 tons from 293,000 tons the previous week. Soybean shipments are up 66% week over week. All three wheats are also higher today and could have a small close higher on the week if that trend continues. Now this week, the impact of rainfall in the hard red winter wheat areas kept prices from rising and although the benefits from the late rain are small, it was enough to trigger some selling. The bullish factor here has been what's going on in the Black Sea and the lack of ships that are being allowed to export without being somehow delayed by Russia despite the extension of the grain deal. India is also expected to harvest a record wheat crop of 112.7 million metric tons in 2023. That's despite rains and hailstorms there. Corn is also trading higher to begin the last day of the week with both old and new crop looking to make some solid gains on the week. The transition from La Nina to El Nino is giving the assumption that more adequate rain will fall to support the USDA's high trend line yield. Now, the corn crops that are experiencing moderate to intense drought rose by a percentage point to 26%, and at this time last year, 20% of the crop was in drought. And overall, there is a cautious optimism that is lifting values for both the broader commodity and equity sectors today, with traders encouraged by reports that negotiations are close to a deal to raise the U.S. debt ceiling. The markets will be closed Monday for the Memorial Day holiday, adding a little bit more intrigue for traders as the news cycle continues. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track, no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council.
Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and now we're turning our focus, well, back to Washington, D.C. In Congress over the past several months, there have been discussions about the debt ceiling. Well, those discussions are heating up, and we're getting close to what the Treasury Department calls the X date, the time when they run out of money. Roughly, they're looking around June 1st is that date. The debt ceiling stands at $31.4 trillion, and there are negotiations to get it raised. And anytime you get a group of politicians in a room, you never know what's going to come out on the other side. So what are the potential ramifications of this debt ceiling deal? Well, Steve Johnson, the Center for Practical Federalism fellow at the State Policy Network, has been thinking about that a lot, and he joins us today. Steve, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Oh, thanks, Mike, for having me on. Before we jump into the potential implications, this is a fast-moving story. Steve, what are we thinking so far on this debt ceiling? Do we have any idea of what Congress might put out there? Well, you know, the Republican House passed a measure a while back, and they've been in some negotiations. It looks like they're getting close to a deal. It's all rumors at this point, so who knows? But it looks like they are going to maybe keep increasing spending on military and veterans while maintaining the current spending levels with all the other spending right now. And it also looks like they might be stopping any of the existing COVID money from going out. Uh, but it's still early. Who knows exactly everything that's going to happen? And they still have to get the votes. Well, that's the thing. We're, we're not close to the end here, though. It could come quickly. And Steve, what intrigued me was that when you were thinking of some of the places that Congress could look to cut funds, if they're trying to make a deal, you highlighted one area that could see funding cut, and that's federal assistance to the states. Can you outline a little bit how big of a deal would that be? How much federal assistance have states gotten over the past four or five years? Yeah, well, this is based off of my experience as a state rep in Michigan. When we had tough budget battles, the the first spot to cut is local revenue sharing, because at the end of the day, it's a lot easier to make the local cities raise their taxes or cut their services than as a state body to raise our taxes or cut services. It's kind of the easy place to cut off money. And there's no reason to think that the federal government would be any different. And as we've seen over the last few years, the growth of federal dollars and state budgets is just incredible. I think right now it's about 36% of your average state budget is federal dollars. And based off of projections, uh, I think from like 1990, where we're at about half their budgets will be, uh, will be federal dollars by about 2046. So when you see Washington having these fights and this dysfunction that's going on, it really, the states have to be nervous. They have to be worried that they could be losing a lot of money. And so what I'm trying to encourage is get state legislatures to think about becoming more independent. Don't be so reliant on those federal funds because you can't trust that they're going to be there tomorrow. Well, and Steve, I think that is a really key point. 36% of the average state budget comes from the feds. I'm curious on that money coming from the federal government, is that consistent guaranteed money? I mean, or is it discretionary spending or is it one-time lump sums that are getting rolled out the door to these states? Or is it all of the above, I suppose? It's all of the above. So, I mean, you've got your Medicaid dollars. That's you know, ongoing stuff that's been there. And then you've got, I mean, especially recently with the transportation dollars, lots of large grants coming into the states that the states have sort of relied to fix their roads. 
that type of stuff could dry up really quickly. So it, it's it's all of the above. I'm not saying that states need to reject every federal dollar tomorrow. That, that'd be a huge lift. But they do need to start to look at the different programs that are coming in and start to see, do they really need those dollars? And then you also start to look at all those strings that are attached because there is no free money coming from D.C. D.C. has their hands on those all the way through. They're manipulating states to go and coerce them into certain directions. And at some point, states have to ask themselves, is this really worth the money? And so far, Steve, it sounds like if states have been asking themselves that question, they've been answering, yes, it is. Give us more federal money. Did some of the recent um, pandemic era bills, I think of the Pandemic Assistance Program, the Inflation Reduction Act, did any of those guarantee the state's money for a long period? Or is it still just it could go away with this debt ceiling deal? No, that that's all one time money. And that's stuff where you know I was just in legislature last term. We'd be very careful and say, you can't rely on these dollars always being there. If you decide to start a program with this one-time money, you need to be ready to figure out either, are you going to close down that program in a couple of years, or are you going to find money elsewhere in your state budget to fund that? Because these COVID dollars were just one-time things. And sadly, so many states have become so reliant on those dollars uh, that we'll see what happens when the money dries up. Let's talk about what happens when it does dry up. Maybe it'll be this debt ceiling fight. Maybe it'll be in a couple of years as funding just sort of comes to an end. But Stephen, do states have the political capital to make up these holes in their budget deficit or could we see services curtailed potentially? That is what we'll have to wait and see. Uh, and and it's, it's so hard to turn down these dollars. I get why they take it. Um, but at some point, if it dries up, then they're going to be forced into, do you cut spending? Do you raise taxes? And, and it's when you have just one small part of your budget, that's easy to manage. But when you're talking 36% of your budget, over a third of that budget being so reliant, I'm not saying that's all going to dry up overnight, but if a good chunk of that happens, that's not a minor tax increase to make that up. That's not just a few services. That's a major hit to their budget. And then you're going to find out who's got the political will to actually get things done. I don't know what's going to happen. We'll see. I mean, we got 50 states. That's a great thing about our nation is different states can learn from each other. They can look and see what others are doing. We'll see. Uh, but it is very problematic right now. Steve, I'm glad you mentioned up the 50 states that we've got across this great country. You are from the Center for Practical Federalism. The idea that states are the laboratories of democracy. Let states try different things and see what works. On this topic specifically, a state being self-reliant, do you have any out there that are, are doing it right, in your opinion, taking federal dollars perhaps, but also looking ahead to maybe they're going away? You know, we're seeing a rise with a number of states, uh, I think like Oklahoma and Tennessee, they've talked about rejecting some of the federal education dollars because of all the strings that are attached to them. They haven't done it yet, but it's the first time we've seen a long time where they've actually started to say, let's maybe pause on taking this money. Let's maybe look and see, is this actually the right thing to do? Uh, some states, I know Michigan, we were trying to get every dollar we could. And I think that was a mistake. Hopefully the conversation begins to change and people start to ask themselves, is it really worth taking these dollars? Because you lose your independence. You lose your autonomy. When you start to rely more and more on those federal dollars, you're probably actually better off turning down some of these dollars. And furthermore, we really want states to start to push back on the feds. I mean, the federal government has grown so large, and it's not even your congressmen, your senators that are attaching these rules to the money. It's a lot of these bureaucrats that are just unaccountable. We need states to start to push back against that try to reassert their independence. And I think we're starting to see that with some states, but there's a long ways to go yet.
There is. And Steve, when you think about federal funding to states, I would imagine just like when you were in the Michigan uh, legislature, it's an easy way to make friends. Hey, we're going to earmark this for you. We're going to send some dollars to your state. I know that earmarks are back in Congress. Do you think broadly we could be going in the wrong direction here long term? Oh, absolutely. And just one of the big arguments on this, when you're in the state, when you say, you know what, we want to turn these dollars down, the the biggest pushback is, well, if you turn this money down, then someone else is going to get it. You know what I would always hear? Well, if we don't take it, then Ohio's going to get it. And as a Michigander, that was political suicide to be giving up stuff to Ohio like that. (laughs) But at some point, you really have to ask yourself, is that really worth it? Was Ohio really better off by taking those dollars, becoming more reliant on them? Or were maybe you better off by saying, we're going to... We're not going to take those dollars. We're going to remain independent. We're not going to have the federal government tell us what to do. We we want 50 independent states. We don't want them just being administrative districts of D.C. And we're starting to lose that. Hopefully, as we go through this discussion, you know, everyone is looking at D.C. I really want to encourage people, look at your state legislature. How much of your budget is federal dollars? How many of your state employees are federally funded? And is there a way to maybe start to reduce that, reduce your reliance, reassert your independence again? Steve, that was an interesting comment you made there. How many of your state employees are federally funded? Is that fairly common across this country to have the feds funding state positions? Absolutely. And it's a number that's growing. Uh, I think it was the the Badger Institute in Wisconsin. They did a study in Wisconsin showing that a large number of their employees were federally funded. And that's something that you really got to be careful on. That is fascinating. I had not yet heard that. But Steve, you mentioned the importance of of pushing back potentially on some of the oversight, some of the strings attached. I hear from listeners all the time. That's something that they're they're keyed into. But the question is, where, where do we go? What are the resources? How can we do something at our state level that right now is being taken care of by the feds? What resources would you advise people to check out if that's some uh, a way they're thinking? Well, State Policy Network, we're very proud of our uh, free market think tanks. We have one in every state, at least one. And so I I would encourage your listeners, go look up State Policy Network, go see what free market think tank is in your state, see the work that they're doing. Uh, They're putting out a lot of great policy proposals to reassert independence, to reassert limited government. Um, So there's, there's a lot of great stuff going on in the states. As bad as D.C. is, look to your states. There's some good options there, some good work going on. And it's always nice. I think when we're working with local legislators and regulators, these are folks more often you can call on the phone or bump into at the grocery store. And I think that's a great form of oversight here, especially across rural America. Steve, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Good luck talking to your congressman. That's not going to happen. But chances are you're going to see your state rep, your state senator around town. It's so much easier to work with them, to talk with them. Our nation was built on localism, on having the decisions be conducted locally not having this one large federal bureaucracy that takes care of things. That's really what we need to get back to. That's how the best decisions are made. And so over time, we really want to just kind of push things away from D.C. and back into the states. Folks, we've been talking with Steve Johnson, the Center for Practical Federalism Fellow at the State Policy Network. Steve, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Mike. And stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to have Naomi Bloom of Total Farm Marketing joining us next. We're going to look ahead at what she's expecting for beef demand through the summer. Leave it here for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. 
You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome. And the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. We 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 are are the the foundation foundation fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with James Rose, a weed management specialist with CHS, about weeds to watch in 2023 and strategies for protecting yield. James, what are some of the most troublesome weeds growers may see this year? My territory, I cover the Mid-South region around Arkansas and Western Tennessee. Palmer amaranth is going to continue to be one of the number one weeds that we have to deal with issues every year with. We've seen it creeping into the upper Midwest through South Dakota and that. And the Eastern Corn Belt, uh, water hemp is still going to be an issue and giant ragweeds. Then you move over to the Midwest, uh, water hemp, kochia, and as I said earlier, Palmer amaranth in some areas. James, is herbicide resistance still a concern? Yes, especially with Palmer amaranth and the amaranth species there. You know, down in our area, we've had documented cases of Liberty and Dicamba resistance here recently. And I think that's going to be a continuing issue, especially as we move into other weed species as well. James, it's important to keep those herbicide applications as efficient as possible. What are your recommendations? Using effective sites of action. Those early timely applications, catching weeds when they're small, overlapping your residual herbicides and not cutting any rates. And those times get tough with finances. People want to cut rates, but that's something you really don't need to do. James, what other strategies should growers be using to manage weeds and protect yield? Obviously, it's working closely with your agronomist, your cooperative agronomist, or whoever it may be. Using best management practices, you know, such as start clean, stay clean, finish clean throughout the growing season. Don't let weeds get away from you later in the year and go to seed. 
many cultural practices. You know, if you have an area that's tough, maybe go in there and disc it up, even though you don't want to. Go ahead and kill those weeds if you can't get it under control. As always, you know, you can use different products, water conditioners. Uh, CHS has quite a few of them, jackhammer type products um, that are acidifying water conditioners, those with AMS for your Liberty applications. And, you know, just using the correct adjuvant as well, whether it's NIS or Cropple, anything like that. Thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, Farm Radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today. Before we go for the weekend, we're going to turn our focus back to the markets. Joining us now is Naomi Bloom of Total Farm Marketing. Naomi, thanks for top, stopping by the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Tell you what, it is going to be the weekend. It's Memorial Day weekend. It is the kickoff to summer grilling season. Naomi here with beef at record high levels. Is this sustainable here going forward for the next couple of weeks? Well, that is really what the market is watching. Um, you know, we have seen box beef values improving in some aspects. We've seen the cash market improving, but that makes sense. You know, this is that time of year where we're having Memorial Day weekend demand met. We've also got Father's Day weekend then coming up just a few weeks after and then 4th of July. So I feel like the recent demand is justified. Um, you know, everybody is anxious to get outside with this nice weather and, and do some grilling, but my concern shifts starting in late June when all of the 4th of July holiday demand gets met at, for, the, for the grocers. Now, um, interesting story is that I'm, I'm hearing more uh, folks get a little bit more vocal about being tired of paying high prices at the grocery store. And quick example, yesterday at my son's track meet, so it's a sectional track meet and it's you know, bringing in four different counties together, um, people I'm not usually around and I heard this group of other moms talking and one lady was like, you know, my grocery cart, I could go in for $350, it lasts me two weeks, that same cart, all the same food, all the same everything is now $425. Then she went on to say, you know, and now my kids are going to be home for summer. You know, how am I supposed to feed them? So. I think you're going to see the, the demand in general for beef start to diminish after we get this grilling season met. We're going to see still people buying hamburger. You're going to see hamburgers grilled. You're going to see hamburger for tacos. You're going to see hamburger for spaghetti. But I'm really thinking that the demand is going to pull back. My other fear with the cattle market is that, you know, our export demand, um, it, it's, it's okay right for now, and we actually had some decent sales this week, but I didn't know that Brazil's production for first quarter was 5% higher than a year ago. So now my fear is, okay, Brazil comes in and undercuts us for soybean and corn. What if they come in and try to do some cheaper um, beef exports that could take away some of our demand? So short-term, things look good, 
but I'm starting to get more cautious for once this initial summer demand is met, I'm, I'm thinking we're going to start to see the pullback because the, the consumer is feeling it everywhere, and they're going to really turn to cheaper proteins. Um, I, I think you're going to see it a lot. I think that makes a lot of sense, Naomi. So one of the great things about the futures market is when things look good, we can make some sales well into the future, given that this expected pullback could happen late this summer. Are you advising folks to uh, to take some aggressive risk management in the live cattle here for fall and winter? Yes. Um, I just started recommending that with clients this week to be looking at their local cash markets for October, December, February, April of next year. I mean, April of next year, trading at 180, and that's just historic, fantastic value. Um, so, I mean, we know that the story is, is friendly for cattle right now. I mean, we've been trading that for a whole year. Um, but it's, you know, think of also the funds being long 100,000 contracts of cattle right now. And if they decide to take their ball and go home and walk away like they did in the grain markets, whoom, down goes that cattle price. And so definitely be thinking of ways you can lock in with your local cash markets, be starting to think about um, laying put strategies underneath. You know, this for cattle for producers, this is, this is your equivalent of 7 to $8 corn. These are historic prices, historic value, and you know at some point what goes up is going to come down. So now I think is the time to be defending those deferred contracts. That makes a lot of sense, Naomi. I, since you're up in Wisconsin, you know I like to get your thoughts on the dairy market here, but I'm curious, this intersection of dairy and beef, we've seen very strong lean trimming demand across the country. We've got low milk prices. Are these two factors going to combine to shrink the dairy herd going forward? Yes, and we're starting to see it. Um, in fact, our dairy team at Total Farm Marketing, they do a great job with their information. And right now, year-to-date, total dairy cow slaughter is at 1.17 million head. Now, a year ago, we were at 1.1. So we are seeing slaughter up almost 5% from a year ago. It's just starting to happen. And so, yeah, like you said, low milk prices um, and higher cattle prices – we're, we're starting to see that creep over into the dairy parlor. Um, dairy prices have just been so soft. We haven't had a lot of fresh news there for um, stronger domestic demand. It's just been constant. And we had a cold storage report that showed that butter in cold storage was up, and butter had been the hot commodity that we were exporting a lot of. So um, we're trying to maybe see that milk market try to bottom out here, but producers' break-evens are actually closer to $18 to $19 for a lot of them. So they are really at not profitable levels at the moment. Um, and and the, the slaughter numbers, like you said, that is, I'm so glad you brought that up because we are starting to see that in the dairy complex. All right. Maybe see some some tailwinds for that dairy price, class three milk, 16, 17 bucks. Naomi, before we let you go, we've got a rally going on today in the grain markets, corn up seven to 13 cents, beans up 13 to 15 cents. Is this time for producers to be laying off some of that risk? Um, okay. So let's just be real about this. Whatever the market, um, whatever the weather forecast is going to be on Monday nights when the markets reopen, that's how grains are going to trade next week. If they keep the hot and dry in there, grain prices probably then are able to stay high next week and then are maybe able to technically work up to the high end of the downtrending line. Um, there's, of course, talk, sudden talk of flash droughts, and this is going to be like 2012, but the weather forecasters that I'm watching, they're, they're in agreement of 
well, it's either going to be like 2012 or we're going to start to see that rain come in. And they said it's, it's the end of the second week of June that the forecast they'll know for sure, you know, if we're going to see rains come back in or it stays in a flash drought condition. What's key about the second week of June seasonally? That is the high seasonally for new crop corn and beans. So make sure you are on your toes. Be watching, folks. That's Naomi Bloom of Total Farm Marketing. Monday, we'll be playing a best of episode, but we hope you all enjoy your Memorial Day holiday. And remember those who gave all in service to this great country. Have a great weekend, everyone. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. It's the most important race of the year. The one where winning is everything. Where the decisions you make now can and will define your entire season. The yields you're dreaming of are either won here or lost here. This is Corn Sprint 2023. You win it with Biopath, a biological fertilizer complement from the Mosaic Company. Specially formulated to make nutrients more available during the most critical uptake periods and strengthen root systems for better absorption. It's the kind of edge that gets your crops all the way to the finish line with greater yield potential, greater return on your fertilizer investment, and just plain old greatness. So win the corn sprint. Include Biopath in your early season fertilizer application. Contact your local retailer or visit cornsprint.com. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. A good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration.